Judicial review is the legal power of the courts to determine if an act of the legislative or executive branch violates the Constitution and therefore is null and void. This concept derives from the superiority of the Constitution as a law and from the nature of the judicial branch to interpret and apply the law accordingly. As Alexander Hamilton explained in Federalist 78, quote, There is no position which depends on clearer principles than that every act of delegated authority, contrary to the tenor of the commission under which it is exercised, is void. No legislative act, therefore, contrary to the Constitution, can be valid. To deny this would be to affirm that the deputy is greater than the principal, that the servant is above his master, that the representatives of the people are superior to the people themselves, that men acting by virtue of their powers may do not only what their powers do not authorize, but what they forbid. But the Constitution, written more than 200 years ago, includes broad and sometimes vague language. And the question of how to define the powers established by the Constitution comes up frequently in constitutional law and litigation. So how do lawyers and judges interpret the Constitution's text and apply it in a modern age? One of the most influential theories of constitutional interpretation is originalism. Originalism, popularized by academics and jurists such as former Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, means that the Constitution's words and phrases should be interpreted according to their original public meaning. Public meaning at the time the provisions were enacted. During her Senate confirmation hearings, current Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan explained, Sometimes the framers laid down specific rules. Sometimes they laid down broad principles. Either way, we apply what they say, what they meant to do. And so in that sense, we are all originalists. One area of constitutional law that has triggered extensive judicial review of legislation and originalist interpretation of the Constitution is gun control legislation and the Second Amendment's right to bear arms. The Second Amendment states, quote, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. In two landmark Second Amendment cases, District of Columbia v. Heller in 2008 and McDonald v. Chicago in 2010, the Supreme Court held that the Second Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment, which applied the Second Amendment to the states, guaranteed citizens the right to possess handguns in their homes for self-defense purposes. In rendering these decisions, the Supreme Court explained on originalist grounds that the right to keep and bear arms is an individual right, and that despite the amendment's reference to the militia, it was not a collective right limited to military purposes. These decisions have triggered a reevaluation of gun control laws, some of which are decades old, throughout the United States. One of the most recent examples involves the so-called stun gun ban in Rhode Island. Rhode Island General Laws Section 11-47 Dash 42A1 states that, quote, No person shall carry or possess or attempt to use against another any instrument or weapon of the kind commonly known as a stun gun. Two Rhode Island residents, Michael O'Neill and Nicola Grasso, wished to purchase stun guns for self-defense, 
and challenged the constitutionality of the stun gun ban in federal court. Would the court invoke judicial review and shoot down the stun gun ban? This is O'Neill versus Narana. Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm your host, Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Bernkoff. Today we're discussing a case that involves judicial review and Second Amendment rights. With me is Frank Saccaccio, partner at Comerford and Saccaccio, and president of the Rhode Island Second Amendment Coalition. Welcome, Frank. Thanks for joining. Thank you for having me on your show. So, skipping ahead a little bit, you won the case. The federal district court in Rhode Island struck down the stun gun ban as unconstitutional, as a violation of your client's Second Amendment right to bear arms. The court's reasoning essentially contained two steps. The first was the court sought to determine whether a stun gun is the type of weapon protected by the Second Amendment. Now, citing to the Heller decision that I mentioned in my opening, the court sought to determine whether stun guns are, quote, in common use for lawful purposes. Looking at statistics throughout the country, the court held that stun guns were in common use and therefore were the type of weapons protected by the Second Amendment. So that led to the second step, in which the court evaluated whether the stun gun ban itself was constitutional under a means-ends balancing test. In other words, whether there was a sufficient governmental interest which would justify the type of restriction at issue. And here the court held that there was not, that a complete ban on stun guns was a bridge too far. Now, only a couple of months after this O'Neill decision was issued, the Supreme Court actually issued another landmark Second Amendment case, the Bruin case, in which, again on originalist grounds, the Supreme Court struck down New York's prohibition against the public carrying of handguns. Now, in that decision, the Supreme Court actually rejected the type of means and inquiry that the Rhode Island court uh, went through in the O'Neill case. So here's my question. Maybe it's a very broad one, but if Bruin had been issued before O'Neill, what would have changed in your case, if anything? Would the litigation have looked different? What would the analysis have been? You know, what are your thoughts on how Bruin kind of changes the landscape here? Well, the federal court found that the stun guns and tasers are actually considered electric arms, which are considered weapons that are actually protected under the Second Amendment. So once they found that there was a complete ban on them, that would have established the initial determination in the Brewer decision was these are weapons commonly used 
and the absolute prohibition on them by the state of Rhode Island, would it have had a historical basis back to 1791 stopping people from having them? It would have been, it would have been a lot harder for the state to try to make an argument on that. The reason being is they would have to prove that there was some historical basis for them to be able to completely ban them. And I don't think they would have been able to prevail on that. So I want to ask about that because so in in Bruin, and I think this comes directly from Heller, as you were just explaining, in order to, once you have a weapon that is determined to be protected by the Second Amendment, you have to determine if the regulation at issue has any historical analog. In other words, if there was a similar regulation back at the time of the founding, you know, in 1787 or, or 1789 or whatever it is, um, whether or not there was a similar regulation at that point in time. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't even have to be uh, a regulation about the same type of weapon. It's just a, a, a similar historical analog. And now my question for you is, why isn't the question of whether or not the weapon is in common use or the weapon is protected by the Second Amendment subject to that same type of analysis? In other words, I'm looking at a stun gun and we've already got a clear decision from the court that handguns were protected by the Second Amendment, okay? And I'm looking at a stun gun, and it shares a lot of the same characteristics as a handgun. It's easily accessible to, to buy. It's not outrageously expensive, for, 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 uh, for instance. You can carry it on your person. You know, it doesn't require necessarily any specialized police training or military training in order to be able to use. You can use it for self-defense purposes. So why isn't that type of analysis applicable to determining whether or not the weapon itself is protected by the Second Amendment? And let me, let me make it a bit before, just so, so I can explain kind of what my point is. My point is because if you don't, if you don't use that type of reasoning, then you fall into the question of whether or not the weapon is in common use today. And if the, the issue is whether or not the weapon is in common use today, then it almost incentivizes legislatures around the country to figure out right away what is, you know, what are the new weapons coming out onto the market? And we better regulate them now so that they're not in common use before they become protected by the Second Amendment. And it almost could potentially cheapen the Second Amendment by making the weapons almost dependent on how effectively and efficiently state legislatures throughout the country are able to regulate the weapon. My understanding of the Brewer decision is if there is a violation of the Second Amendment and it's a weapon that is entitled to Second Amendment protection, the only thing that a plaintiff or somebody coming forward has to make like a prima facie case for is that this is protected on the Second Amendment, and there's a, there is a restriction on it. 
if you look at the language utilized in the test by by the Bruin decision, it's the state at that point then has an affirmative duty to now show the basis for it. So I'm challenging this actually in in Superior Court right now in Rhode Island. I want it so that the court will interpret this to mean once I put forth the prima facie case, the burden shifts now to the state to prove their side of the case. As long as there's a Second Amendment basis and it's protected, I've done my job. I've shown there's a violation. Now it's the state's job. So in common use may not be, because of the Brewer decision, really may not be too much of a factor anymore. It might be just that firearm, that weapon is protected under the Second Amendment and there is a restriction on it. And that might be enough. That's the way I'm reading the Brewer decision. Let's take that and discuss the O'Neill case a little bit more specifically, because one of the things that I noticed in that case is that to prove that a stun gun is in common use, that it's protected by the Second Amendment, one of the things that you introduced as evidence was some statistical information. And it sounds like, you know, there were affidavits and studies and things that were introduced as part of the summary judgment record in which you actually went out and figured out how many stun guns are being used throughout the United States. And because there was such a number, you know, the court was able to easily, I think, accept that it is in common use and therefore it is the type of weapon that's protected by the Second Amendment. And I noticed there was a Massachusetts decision that was cited in the O'Neill decision, this Caetano case that went up to the Supreme Court at one point on the Massachusetts stun gun ban. And in Caetano, the Supreme Court rejected uh, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court's reasoning that upheld the stun gun ban, but it just sent it back down to the Massachusetts High Court to make another determination. Justice Alito issued a concurrence in that case and basically said, I'd have gone a step further. I would have said, based on the sheer volume of stun guns that are used in the United States, that these stun guns are in fact protected by the Second Amendment. And so it's almost like Alito, who's an originalist, he's suggesting that the analysis on whether a weapon is protected is dependent on whether that weapon is currently in common use. And you won on that in the Rhode Island case. And I guess what I'm wondering is, why is that the case? Because that's dependent on state legislatures not being savvy enough to regulate it. So I don't know. I'm curious about your thoughts. I know you're engrossed in in all kinds of Second Amendment litigation. So I'm curious as to what your thoughts are. We had affidavits from all different manufacturers to show the sheer volume of these stun guns and tasers all across the United States. The numbers were staggering. So <clears throat> once you show that a lot of people are utilizing these and they're also utilizing for non-lethal forms of protection, the court did then was able to make the determination that these electric arms are actually protected under the Second Amendment which is one of the steps that we had to do. So once you get past that next step, then the court looks at it and says, is an absolute ban constitutional? 
They found it, to, it not to be constitutional. So just struck it down completely on stun guns and tasers. Let me throw out a hypothetical, see if I can get you to commit. New weapon is created and it's non-lethal like a stun gun, but it's the technology is such where, you know, it doesn't have any kind of a projectile. We'll call it a, a ray gun just for the heck of it. And this is new to market and gun control advocates throughout the country figure out this ray gun, the new type of weapon, and they want to regulate it. And so before even consumers know to go out and buy this thing, half of the states have already restricted it, bans on ray guns. And in the other states, talking about sparsely populated states, and so the sales aren't quite what you've got with the stun guns. So basically, let's say if the stun guns, you know, if 100,000 of them are sold a year, let's say there's 5,000 ray guns sold a year. So I think it's a tough argument to say it's in common use currently. Under, under that hypothetical, is the ray gun protected by the Second Amendment? There would have to be factors that would have to be presented to a court to say, is this a weapon that's protected under the Second Amendment? I think under the new Brewer decision, I'm not sure how relevant it is, is it in common use? Because the common use was part of the balancing test that they had, where they would balance that in common use against trying to put in place a or support a governmental interest in protecting whoever they wanted to protect on the balancing test. I don't think it's that has that much of a impact anymore, as long as you can show that it is a weapon that would be protected under the Second Amendment and it's being restricted, I think it's enough. And I think at that point, the Second Amendment would apply. And now the burden, I believe, would shift to the states to say, how do you have a historical basis on restricting this? I think that's the only analysis under the Bruin decision. The Bruin has completely changed the landscape, completely changed the test. So it's pretty straightforward. Is there historical basis for it? And if not, the restriction on that protected Second Amendment item is unconstitutional. You've probably get this all the time, but I have to ask, you know, in the age of, of mass shootings and increased calls for gun control legislation, there are questions about what kinds of gun control legislation will survive scrutiny under this new line of cases, Heller, McDonald, and now Bruin, this new framework. So do you have a sense, you know, what kind of regulations are going to survive? Do you have a feel for that at this point? I would be speculating, but if I'm going to speculate, I would say it would go to historical restrictions, such as violent felons and people that have severe mental illness. Other than that, those are basically the historical restrictions on the ability to own and possess a firearm. And I think that's where they're going to be. That's where the line is going to be drawn. So... I know you have a full roster of Second Amendment cases. What's the next theater of Second Amendment litigation? I have 
seven cases pending right now in Rhode Island in the Rhode Island Supreme Court against the Attorney General for violations of issuing concealed carry weapons permit. One of them actually involves a case, criminal charges that were dropped and then sealed. And the Attorney General still decided to utilize that information to deny somebody a concealed carry weapons permit. So that one's in front of the Supreme Court, actually going for oral arguments in two weeks. I have cases pending right now in front of, against DEM because they have done the exact same thing that the New York case, the Brewer case did, and they have just declared whole areas of Rhode Island, which DEM manages, gun-free zones. So even if you had a license to carry, you can't carry there. That one right now is in front of the Supreme Court in Rhode Island, and a secondary case I filed in the Superior Court. So we have two different avenues of attack on that one. So I'm real excited about that one to finally get people to be able to utilize, fully utilize their concealed carry weapons permit. And just to give you a little example, a lot of people don't know, if you go into the woods hunting and it's bow season, DEM regulations require that even if you have a concealed carry weapons permit allowing you to carry a concealed firearm loaded, DEM will arrest you if you carry while hunting your legally licensed firearm. They only want you to carry the bow and arrow. So just, it makes no sense. We've contacted DEM. They're just digging their heels in. And I said, fine, we'll go to court. You're doing the exact same thing that New York was doing in the Brewer case and lost. So this should be fun. So last question for you, Frank. How did you get involved in Second Amendment litigation? Well, I'm the president of the NRA in Rhode Island. I'm an attorney. I've always been supportive of this. And at this point, now that we have the Brewer decision, we need to start challenging some of these to put the Second Amendment back to where it should be before people should have the right to protect themselves in their home, outside the home, and that we just really have to stop the continued encroachment on the Second Amendment and stopping people from defending themselves. Best of luck to you on, on your other cases, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me on your show. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you are involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at bernkofflegal.com. That's rstetson at b-e-r-n-k-o-p-f legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments on Twitter at legal underscore judgments and on LinkedIn at legal judgments podcast. And don't forget that E in judgments.